This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, is in a deposition right now and unable to join us today. Craig, of course, writes the, the blog, mayitpleasethecourt.com, and I write uh, the blogs, Law Sites, Media Law, and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Joining us today is uh, a special guest, Jonathan Zittrain. Uh, Jonathan is the Chair in Internet Governance and Regulation at Oxford University, and a principal of the Oxford Internet Institute. He's also the Jack N. and Lillian R. Berkman Visiting Professor of for Entrepreneurial Legal Studies at Harvard Law School. And at Harvard, he was a, a co-founder of Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Uh, he is also, uh, with his students, helped found uh, The Chilling Effects uh, and uh, a number of other initiatives uh, and was co-counsel with Lawrence Lessig in, in Eldred v. Ashcroft, which challenged the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998 uh, all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, most recently, Jonathan is author of uh, a new book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. And we're going to talk to Jonathan more about uh, the book and uh, a number of other topics uh, in, of, of Internet law. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer. So welcome to the program, Jonathan Zitrain. Thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, Jonathan, let's let's start with the book. And, uh, of course, the, 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 the title uh, suggests uh, 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 something ominous about the future of the Internet. Uh, explain that for us. Why, why would we want to stop the future of the Internet from coming? Well, I worry that the future won't, must, m- won't much resemble the uh, present or the past. Uh, the more I learn about it, the more just amazed I am uh, day in and day out at the ways in which the Internet that we know is sort of a collective hallucination and that it crucially relies on uh, forms of cooperation to keep going. Uh, That's one of the reasons it came so far from left field. At the time when uh, kind of we were trying to figure out out of the primordial soup what the big worldwide consumer network we would all use would be, the corporate bets, the standard rational market bets were being placed uh, on gated communities like uh, AOL or CompuServe or Prodigy or The Source. And those are models that are much easier to understand in the, uh, in the classical economic sense. The net is much different. And while those differences made it outcompete AOL and the others, my concern is now that it's gone mainstream, there are reasons why it may, uh, its age is starting to show and it may be exploited by people who uh, take advantage of the fact that it's such an open instrumentality. Well, you, I, I had the, uh, the pleasure to hear you speak recently at, at, at Harvard, uh, at Berkman's uh, 10th anniversary celebration. And uh, uh, you, you make the distinction between uh, kind of the, the generative Internet of, of old, I guess we can say, and, and, and uh, sort of... The, the more tethered uh, uh, products that are coming about now. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, one way of looking at it, uh, it's been a really useful set of uh, kind of 
milestone markers, although I don't want to overplay it, um, has been to look at Apple Computer from its founding to today. Uh, Apple Computer had its first major product release to the world in 1977 when Steve Jobs brought us the Apple II personal computer. And that was the first time the world had seen in one convenient plastic molded case uh, a single box that when you take it home gives you a blinking cursor. Uh, nothing to do with it at first. Uh, nothing, nothing that it does that's useful, but uh, the anticipation was that nerds would buy it and program it themselves, and who knows what they would do with it. Um, and that if some nerds did something interesting with it, they could share it with others. And once that happens, you don't need to be a nerd to have the Apple. You just need to get it and then click on something that another nerd did and gave or sold to you. That's what I call a generative platform, one that's incomplete, where the maker of the platform doesn't have fully fixed expectations about how it will be used and where anybody with enough skill can develop it further and then share those developments with people who don't have to be that skilled. And uh, that's one bookend of this history. At the other side, the other bookend is the introduction of the iPhone in 2007, 30 years later after the Apple II. And the iPhone was, uh, in its first iteration, uh, unapologetically completely controlled by Apple, not just how it left the factory, but after it left the factory, what you would see on that magical main menu, how the phone would function, what it would cost to do what, all of that would be under control of the vendors from whom you purchase the phone. In that sense, I say it's tethered to its makers. Now, the iPhone has an interesting asterisk next to it. About a year after its introduction, Steve Jobs announced a software development kit to make it a little bit PC-like in the sense that now it would be okay by Apple for people to write new code for the phone. But interestingly, in order to share that code with others, they can't do what you can do with a PC, which is somebody has a PC, you have the software, you hand them the software, or they double-click on it. With the iPhone, everything gets funneled through the iPhone application store. And that gives Apple a chance to approve or disapprove of makers of applications or of individual applications. And that is a sea change in the way we experience uh, the creation and distribution of the code that we all use. Uh, and I have reason to, to claim that it's not just going to be for our phones, but that's really the computing platform of tomorrow, one that is what I would call contingently generative. And what's wrong with that? I mean, what the, in part, what's that suggesting is, is greater control over the technology, perhaps uh, less uh, danger of, of, of viruses or, or of meltdowns or, or of inconsistent uh, uh, you know, software uh, problems. Why, why should we be worried about that? Well, there are two main reasons. One is... The kinds of innovation we've seen over the past 30 years, thanks to a fully generative PC platform running on a neutral network, has been uh, there have been lots of disruptive changes that they've just grown popular, and that's that. You know, people like them, and the vendors or third parties who are upset by them can't stop it. So, for example, we see the rise of the World Wide Web coming from a physicist who isn't charged by anybody with making the World Wide Web. It wasn't an intergovernmental consortium or anything. It was an experiment that happened to become, you know, the real future. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer networking, same way, even as lots of entities felt threatened by P2P. There was no magic switch to shut it down before it could prove its usefulness, which I think it now has in a totally authorized, non-controversial way. 
So in a world in which we have tethered devices, it's much easier for these revolutionary things to never take off because you'll see the centralized vendor imposing its own expectations or business model on things, or you'll see outsiders asking that the law intervene to stop things from taking off because they feel threatened by it and think there's some argument they can make as to why the law ought to stop it. The second cluster of reasons um, expands on that regulatory point. And for that, I look at a couple examples today in which we've seen some pretty unusual regulatory moves with tethered devices. Uh, one is the lawsuit that has arisen between TiVo and EchoStar, where TiVo, the DVR maker, went after EchoStar, uh, a dish maker, a uh, TV satellite dish maker, which had incorporated DVR functionality into the EchoStar dish system. And TiVo sued EchoStar for patent infringement they got a $70 million judgment, but they also got the court to order EchoStar within 30 days to do a remote update to all the EchoStar boxes, uh, but a handful, frying them. And that's a remedy that's trivial to implement in a world of tethered appliances that is totally different from uh, the environment we have of the PC. Well, I mean, it, for everybody who's out there... Uh you know, relying on or using a, a tethered device or comfortable with a tethered device, there are any number of people who continue to uh, be, uh, uh, not sure of the word, the, the free spirits of the Internet, the people who are continuing to develop code and, and uh, run with it and, and develop new applications. Uh, can't these two worlds kind of peacefully coexist? I would like that to be the case. Uh, I want to see a world in which we have these fun appliances. I mean, I own a TiVo. I like TiVo. But I'm also uh, very much concerned that we won't see balance and that we'll actually see a wholesale shift away from generative instrumentalities and towards tethered ones. And uh, much of the book is concerned with trying to both persuade people and map out how we might save that generative part of the ecosystem. There has been, I mean, the history of the internet has been, you know, somewhat of a, perhaps a, a dialectical progression in the sense that uh, we went from a kind of a, a wild west early on to, to, to uh, you know, what you describe in your book as the kind of proprietary barons of AOL, CompuServe, and, and Prodigy trying to stake their claims, trying to control the internet. Uh, and, and then back to perhaps more of a, a freer era of blogs and, and podcasts such as this. I mean, does the Internet have the capacity to kind of heal itself or self-right itself uh, and address these concerns on its own? I think it does, uh, although by self-heal, I would think by that we mean can it uh, – can we come together to help it heal rather than – if we just wait, will everything right itself? I'm not sure that's the case, that it will just automatically, magically uh, heal itself. Yeah, I don't mean to suggest that, that technology. Happen, that could be a problem. Right. I don't mean to suggest that technology is going to heal itself, but the, the, the people, <laughs> the users, the community of people who use the Internet yes. um, uh, have the capacity to do that. Yes. So what... What does your book propose? Uh, and, and in particular, I mean, let, let's start with some of the legal issues. What are some of the legal concerns here? What I mean, are, are, 
is there a fear that this non-generative uh, move for sort of a non-generative uh, internet to, toward, towards this uh, increasingly controlled and tethered world will have um, uh, legal implications that uh, are, that would be uncomfortable? I mean, implications for privacy, implications for uh, uh, intellectual property. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. What's the legal downside to this is really what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I would pick up where we left off on discussing the uh, the Tebow versus Echostar case. For one thing, if you think about the fact that you could, with a single court order, ask that a certain device that millions of people have purchased cease functioning in every home and office in which it's placed, you realize that you can do measures that fall short of actually killing it, but that in some ways are more worrisome. So, for example... You could imagine a show recorded by a TiVo or an EchoStar device that after uh, some form of litigation is found to be infringing copyright or defaming somebody, and the order could go out to simply uh, amend what's already on every box out there so that you cut out the portion of the show that is said to be breaking the law. And uh People just wake up and they find that The Simpsons is 21 minutes instead of 22 minutes because something's been eliminated. Um, or another example is some people may have the OnStar system in their cars. It uh, gives you turn-by-turn directions. It has a kind of GPS functionality and an ability to press a button in the rearview mirror and reach uh, some help from uh, the provider. So the maker of an OnStar-like system for a car uh, was asked by the FBI to simply reprogram the system at a distance and make it so that it uh, it flipped on the microphone in the rearview mirror at all times. So the car containing people of interest would just be monitorable by the FBI every minute of the day that they're in the car. And you can see the same thing happening with mobile phones, actually. They've been uh, under the roving microphone, uh, the roving wiretap bill, uh, opportunities for law enforcement to say, great, we want to reprogram this phone, simply turn on its microphone, even when you're not in a call, it's just picking up ambient noise. That's the kind of thing that when you forget about the U.S. for a moment, imagine places where there's not the strong rule of law, like China, you realize that rolling off the assembly lines are the means of surveillance that Orwell you know, only imperfectly dreamed of in 1984. And I think there's some real worry about that when you just have no way of knowing what the devices and objects closest to you are doing. So you're raising a, a much more ominous uh, uh, foreboding here that that uh, that Big Brother uh, could soon be watching and could be aided by the technology we're all taking for granted. Yes, I think that's true. So what what is your proposal? What how do you suggest that we uh, uh, keep this from happening? What actions should we be taking now to? you know, uh, stop the future from the Internet from arriving? Well, uh, on the privacy front that we were just talking about, if vendors are pressured enough by the public who come to realize what's going on and what could be going on, uh, they could start to offer up systems that are much more transparent about how they operate and when they're being changed and give people an opportunity to say, you know what, I'd rather not have the Wednesday update. If you built the EchoStar box so that it could reject software updates of a certain kind, that would eliminate the remedy that fries them all coming out of the TiVo versus EchoStar case. Um, So I think there are ways with enough information to pressure vendors to make things more transparent. 
of course, you could also demand of governments that are responsive to such demands that they limit the application of orders like that, even though it might seem like, well, look, we've already adjudged this to be copyright infringing. Why shouldn't we, quote unquote, impound all the infringing copies? Um, and I think there are lots of reasons, uh, many of which I discuss in Chapter 5 of the book, as to why that kind of, quote unquote, perfect enforcement is undesirable. More broadly, the way I want to save the generative Internet and PC um, gets back to the stuff you were asking about, about self-healing mechanisms. I'm part of a, uh, an enterprise called StopBadware.org. StopBadware's aim is to uh, help people download a little bit of software that basically radiates their own device's vital signs to the rest of the participating users. And with it, you can start to get a sense of how healthy and happy the herd is. So we can start to ask before we run new software, how new is this software? How long has it been around the herd? Uh, when it is run, does it on average make a computer happier or sadder as measured by the number of pop-up windows or viruses or restarts that it has to do? And with that, we start to get a sense of what's out there so that we don't have to abandon the generative PC entirely and go to these gated communities, but instead we have a security model that is more true to the ethos of the original internet. Of course, to some that might sound like a, where the cure is as bad as the disease. I mean, it, it's it's one form of monitoring versus another form of monitoring. Well, that's true, and that's why it's been hard to put the book into a bumper sticker because <laughs> uh, it's arguing in two directions simultaneously. To the people uh, and market participants who are so excited about this new generation of gated communities, I want to try to put on the brakes a little bit and say, wait a minute, even rational decisions on an individual basis can lead to the wrong decision overall for the ecosystem. And then in the other direction, to those who are really into the tech, who just think, hey, we shouldn't do anything. People should just upgrade their firewalls on their PCs or something. I want to say, no, the problem runs much deeper than that. And if we don't take action against it, we're going to be in real trouble. You talk about uh, social solutions. You talk about potential technological solutions, such as, such as the one you just described. You talk about possibly using virtual machines as, as at least part of a solution, uh, if I understand you. Uh, can you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, there are some technological parlor tricks that I think can buy us a crucial interval of time uh, that basically seek to reconcile the experimentalist nature of the Internet with the realization that we now have prime-time applications and crucial data that we can't mess around with. We can't tolerate spyware getting into it or a virus wiping it out. And there are some basic ideas like having a single machine have a red zone and a green zone in it, and you keep your uh, crucial applications and data in the green zone, and you can't run new software there. That's basically stuff that's been approved by trusted gatekeepers. But then with the flick of a switch or the press of a button, you can go to the red zone and try out Skype or whatever other new instrumentality there is. And if the worst happens and that thing tries to wipe everything clean, it's all confined to the red zone of the machine. Um, these are some ways in which we might be able to buy some time. It's not perfect. In the red zone, green zone example, uh, the whole point of having the red zone is not just to mess around, but that you realize that the next great application may be coming from out of left field and not be approved by the powers that be. And when it becomes crucial, now you need to move it over into the green zone or move its data into the green zone, at which point you need to checkpoint Charlie between the two and things start to get very complicated. Um, 
So there's no kind of magic bullet for it, but I do think that a recognition of the value of experimentation tempered by knowledge that we also have stuff we really care about and can't afford to mess around with, that's what helps us move forward. And you do say in the book that there are ways for the law to to help facilitate uh, a generative internet, uh, or or at least not hurt it, I think are, are your words. Uh, are we talking about legislation? Are you talking about litigation? What is the role that the law can play here? Well, I think a lot of people are surprised at how lightly I invoke law to do a lot of the things I'm interested in doing, that much of the book is meant to be a market intervention the way that a consumer reports story about a toaster that catches on fire is a market intervention by consumer reports, just trying to get people to behave differently on the basis of new information. But it's also true that so many of the markets we have here are shaped by, even created by, legal and policy action that you end up having to go back and look at the law and policy there and see what ought to be changed. And for intellectual property, uh, there are several examples. I mean, it's very easy for code that people write to be claimed to be infringing copyright of other code or to be infringing patent, for which it's amazing. Of course, the way patent works, independent invention is no uh, defense. And so I could sit there with that blinking cursor, come up with a brilliant thing, and just use it myself and be infringing a patent that I'd never read or heard of because somebody else could claim that the abstractions represented by what I did had already been patented, uh, even though it's not as if you have people combing through new patent applications ready to say Eureka when some new discovery has been documented there. So that's an example, I think, of ways in which the law is creating or not certain markets and making it easier or harder for generative things to be created and to take off. Jonathan, stay with us. We need to take a short break, and we will be right back after these words. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs. J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. 
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, J. Craig Williams, is unable to be with us today. Uh, we are talking with Jonathan Zetrain, author of uh, the new book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. Jonathan, you much of your, your legal career has been in, in uh, this field, I guess we call Internet law, and uh, uh, you helped uh, found the, the Berkman Center. You're uh, a professor of Internet law now at Oxford University. And yet, to some extent, what I hear you saying is that, is that law is perhaps uh, uh, not a sufficient uh, device to, to tackle some of the major issues of the Internet. Uh, where, what is the, the role of law here uh, now in, in 2008 uh, in, in terms of uh, regulating the Internet? Uh, is it a, a sufficient device, uh, or are social systems uh, more important to that? Well, the way I think about it is too easily when we see a problem, a legitimate, genuine, troublesome problem online, too easily we think that law has got to provide an answer. Once we can show an injury, we say, all right, you know, where's the law here? And there are times, I think, of course, when legal intervention is called for, but I think of it, it carries such problems with it, particularly in the Internet space, because you run into enforcement difficulties, you run into all sorts of other problems, uh, that I'm interested in solutions to real problems that don't come from governments in the first instance, and maybe even don't come from corporate actors who kind of in a paper, you know, cash and carry model offer security for a fee. And for that, organizations like Stop Badware have collectively monitoring our vital signs, or there's another piece of Stop Badware that involves working with a consortium, including Google, uh, which will surf the web looking for websites that do so-called drive-by downloads, that if you visit the website with the wrong browser, that's it. You get infected. Your computer's been completely compromised, turned into a zombie. We uh, work with Google to document those sites. And then when people uh, do a search on Google for which one of the uh, answers, one of the links returned is one of those sites that we have found to have the drive-by downloads, the user gets a warning and that warning tends to drive the user away from visiting the web page. Webmasters who previously had zero interest in understanding that their web pages had been hacked and were dealing out bad software uh, and in solving it, suddenly they're very interested in solving it if they realize that they've lost 90% of their business because Google is no longer directing traffic there. So that to me is an example of intervention that didn't require a legislature anywhere to pass a law um, but that can have a real sea change effect on the level of security. Of course, it has its own issues because you get into due process questions. Webmasters say, well, wait a minute then. Some unaccountable nonprofit is depriving me of 90% of my traffic without even giving me a chance to respond. These are really interesting new questions that I guess in some sense are legal questions and in in that they involve you know, a form of private regulation. Well, one of the uh, announcements made uh, at Berkman's 10th anniversary was that it, it's moving out of the law school and becoming a, a campus-wide initiative. Uh, you know, 10 years ago uh, or, or more, when, when Berkman was founded, uh, Internet law was, was perceived as kind of a, a new frontier for, for both practitioners and, and, and scholars. Is it even legitimate to talk about Internet law as a separate field now, or, or have we come to the, the point at which we, we see law 
you know, internet law is is uh, an extension of of the same law that applies to the rest of the world. Well, I think it very much counts as a separate field, so long as we're willing to construe law as forms of constraint on behavior that you know emanate from both public and private sources in a structured way. If you think about it that broadly, then what we were just talking about, about alternatives to sovereigns passing a law or a lawsuit to cure a perceived or forestall a perceived problem, you start to see, wow, yeah, there really are ways in which problems that arise in cyberspace are consistently resistant to standard governmental solutions and consistently open possibly to other collaborative forms of solution thanks to the existence of the network that wouldn't be available in real space. And in that sense, I think we do see it as uh, a coherent area in which to be thinking about regulation rather than just saying, you know, it's illegal to gamble in your house. It's illegal to gamble online. There's nothing to see here, folks. Many of our listeners uh, tend to be lawyers or, or other legal professionals. And I guess, is this book for them, should, should they take this book as a call to arms of some sort? And if so, uh, what should they be doing in response to it? Well, I'd love to see uh, the nerds of the world unite a little bit, the software developers who kind of provide the dark energy of the Internet, who are writing code for fun more than for profit, although they wouldn't mind a little profit down the road. Uh, I think they ought to be applying pressure to the makers of contingently generative technologies, whether it's the iPhone or the new gated communities like Facebook applications platform and the Google applications platform, to try to make it so that Facebook and Google give some promises up front that say, look, we're not going to kill your code uh, unless X, Y, and Z obtain, and there'll be some form of due process for determining whether it obtains. The idea right now that you can write and build your life or your business around a Facebook application that has millions of users on day one, and then at some point Facebook in its sole discretion decides that your application is too spammy or bad or something, and boom, it's gone on day two. I would like to see coders uh, not just accepting those kinds of restrictions on what they can do. Uh, I think among consumers, I want to emphasize the value of generative platforms and try to get technologies developed so that with a good judicious double-clicking on something like this Stop Badware Vital Signs program, they can participate in making for a safer Internet themselves. Nerds of the world unite, I guess, uh, is the watchword. Uh, And we've been talking about the future of the Internet. Uh, One of the – another of the topics uh, much being discussed at at Berkman was was the future of Jonathan Zittrain. Uh, What's the future hold for you? (laughs) Well, I uh, guess I should say your introduction is already, as of just about two weeks ago, dated. Uh Uh, I have uh, uh, just agreed to come back to Harvard Law School full-time. Uh, so I'll be uh, back at the Berkman Center um, and uh, keep very good connections with my good friends in Oxford, but I'll be uh, reducing my carbon footprint to one time zone. <laughs> well, congratulations. We're, we're glad to hear you'll be back in Massachusetts, and uh, I'm sure Harvard is, is thrilled to have you. Uh, Jonathan, we're about out of time. I, I'd like to give uh, our guests uh, the final word, an opportunity to share any f- final thoughts they have. And... Uh, also, uh, you know, let our listeners know where they can find out more about your book. Well, 
the book itself is available through the usual channels. You can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and get a hard copy for which the cover is itself in the spirit of the generative internet, the result of an internet contest. A guy named Ivo Vanderint in Holland won a contest uh, for the cover, which is, a, if you ask me, I'm a little biased, but a lovely cover showing uh, a train track, one going over uh, a sort of cliff of sorts, another uh, looking a little safer. Um, and you can also download it for free online at uh, org. Of course, be happy if people wanted to buy it, but also happy if they simply wanted to download it. And last, I think we checked, uh, the PDF had been downloaded about 160,000 times. Uh, it, and just to be clear, what is your official title now at Harvard? Uh, professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Very good. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, the book uh, is The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. Our guest is Jonathan Zittray, now a professor of law at Harvard Law School. And I'd like to remind all of our listeners that they can find this in all of our programs at LegalTalkNetwork.com and also on the uh, podcast library of iTunes. Thank you very much, Jonathan Zittrain, for joining us today. Thanks so much. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.